0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, Romans 10, 1-4 is our text this morning. Some of you might know that there was a controversy that took place at Wheaton College in the Chicago area this past December. And uh, what happened was there was a, a professor at the college, a professor of political science, I think, and her name, Laricia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Laricia Hawkins. <clears throat> and she went on Facebook and she posted a picture of herself wearing a traditional Muslim headscarf and joined with that some comments that included this remark, we as Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And that was a very controversial statement to be made from a Wheaton College professor. Wheaton is a conservative, evangelical, Christian school. And so, um, those in charge of Wheaton put uh, the professor on paid administrative leave for a time, stating uh, that her statements were out of accord with their doctrinal convictions. And, um, you know, they continued to work it out in in a respectful and kind way, and eventually came to a mutual agreement that the professor should leave uh, the college. I think she's now taken a job at the University of Virginia. Um, And so it seems like it was worked out as peacefully as possible. But it certainly brings to our mind this question that a lot of you have perhaps thought of Maybe you've been asked yourself, what about that? Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Are all religions basically up the mountaintop eventually to reach the same divine being? There is a word that I'm going to teach you. Some of you know it. Maybe some of you don't. But it's a word that um, every Christian should be familiar with. It's called pluralism. Pluralism is the view that all major religions are legitimate expressions of humankind's response to the divine, and all should be understood as acceptable and sufficient systems of worship. If you don't know, I'll tell you, our culture is very pluralistic uh, and getting more pluralistic and the more pluralistic our culture gets the more pressing and important it is for us as Christians to be able to address this question and to talk about it do Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists are we all worshipping the same god so we're continuing through Romans and we're at chapter 10 and we're looking at verses 1 through 4 and you know these verses are not about Islam <laughs> And they're not really about pluralism, actually, but they do provide instruction for how we as Christians should think about uh, living in a pluralistic world. And so that's what I'm calling this sermon, living in a pluralistic world. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us instruction in this passage. So let's read this. Let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, Romans 10, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Lord, we ask that you would please add your blessing now to the preaching of your word. Would you protect me from error, from misleading statements, from unhelpful statements? Would you please grant to these people the grace to receive what you have to say to them, to receive it by faith? Father, what we want is you to be exalted, you to be glorified, and you to be pleased. We want to understand your revelation well, so help us to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Three observations I'm going to make from this text about this topic of living in a pluralistic world. Uh, to say this very briefly, there's a possibility and there's a responsibility and there's an opportunity. Those three things. But let me flesh out those, those statements. First thing I want to show you here is that there is the possibility of being wrong about God. It's a possibility of being spiritually wrong. So let's look to the text here. First thing to notice in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. So the question is, who is them? What's Paul talking about? If you look back to the end of chapter 9, verses 31-32, you see that he's talking about Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and did not succeed in reaching that law so the word them, the pronoun then in chapter 10 verse 1 is referring to israel to jews to those who practice the religion of judaism and one thing that is pretty easy to take from this is that judaism and christianity are not the same what paul is doing here is he's talking about another religion And there's a significant difference between these two, Judaism and Christianity. Christianity says Jesus is the Messiah. Judaism says, no, he's not. They have two entirely different perspectives on who Jesus is. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And at the end of chapter 9, he's concerned about the fact that um, the Jews didn't succeed in fulfilling the law. And so in chapter 10, he continues and he's kind of musing about this. And what's interesting is that Paul, in response to Judaism and Jews who have rejected the righteousness of God, Paul doesn't say, does he? He doesn't say, well, that's okay, because we live in a pluralistic world. And by the way, Paul's world was every bit as pluralistic as our day. But Paul doesn't say, well, it's a pluralistic world and we're all worshiping the same God, so that's okay. Jews can worship as they want, and I'm a Christian, I'll worship as I want. That's not the perspective that Paul brings here. Instead, look what he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The implication of that is that Paul doesn't think that they're saved. He thinks they're unsaved. He thinks they don't know the true God. He thinks they're in danger of suffering the condemnation and rejection of God. Now the typical objection that you might hear today would just be, how could the Jews be wrong? How can you say that they're wrong in the practice of their religion, particularly when they're so devoted and so committed, and they have so much passion, and they're so filled with zeal, and they're so sincere? Certainly people who are that devoted to their religion can't be wrong, But Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. He acknowledges that. The Jews are committed. They're devoted. But the problem is that they have a zeal that is not in accord with knowledge. They have a misplaced zeal. They have a zeal for something that is false. It seems what Paul is implying here is that it's possible to be zealous and to be wrong. It's possible to be sincere and to be wrong. And it reminds me of a passage um, earlier in the Gospels where Jesus is having an interaction with the Sadducees who also had a particular conception of God, and they were religious people, and they were devoted to God, and they were trying to trick Jesus up by asking Him questions about what the resurrection would be like and who would be married to whom. They were just trying to trick Him up. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 22 to them, to the Sadducees. He answers them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Basically, what he's saying is that you don't know the revelation of God in the Scriptures. Your convictions are not based on the knowledge that God has revealed. And so you're wrong. It's possible, friends, to be wrong in our conceptions and beliefs about God, And that is perhaps surprising to some people, again, because there's this view in this culture that just as long as we're honest, and as long as we're given all we have, and as long as we believe with all of our heart, then we must be okay, but not according to Paul. Now, let me clarify here. What Paul is um, challenging is zeal without knowledge. He's not challenging knowledge, or excuse me, he's not commending knowledge without zeal. There's zeal without knowledge, and knowledge without zeal. Knowledge without zeal is also a problem. That is, knowing a lot of things about God, having our heads filled with doctrine and right beliefs, but having no affection in our hearts for God, that's a problem as well. Um, Maybe that's a challenge to some in this room. You know, you've got it all down doctrinally, but your heart is cold as stone toward God. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation? He said, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and so I spit you out of my mouth. Affection for God, love for God is absolutely essential, and that expresses itself in different ways for different people. But Paul, by saying zeal without knowledge is bad is not saying that knowledge without zeal is good. Clarification. Zeal is good. Passion is good. Conviction is good. Being devoted to a cause is good. But your zeal, sincerity, passion is not a measure of truth. It doesn't indicate what is right and what is wrong. A lot of us have kind of a Facebook view of truth. I like it, therefore it must be true. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's talking about these Jews who have a zeal and a passion, and yet they are falling short of knowledge. I mean, if you just think of some basic, clear, simple examples in our world of how um, a passion or a zeal for something doesn't necessarily equate to uh, truth or anything you'd want. For instance, let's say you took your car to a garage and you were talking to the mechanic about replacing your brakes, and he said, I just want you to know I am so passionate about automobiles and I'm so passionate about brakes. And then you say, well, what do you know about them? And he says, nothing. I've never studied anything. I've never done any work whatsoever on a car ever. But I sure am passionate about it. And I believe in my heart that I can do a good job. Are you gonna entrust the brakes of your cars to that person? How about a doctor? I just have a passion for people to be healthy. I have a passion for heart surgery. I want to perform your heart surgery for you, and you ask that doctor, well, what do you know about it? Nothing. I've never been to school. I've never studied it. I don't know what I'm doing, but I believe in my heart that I can do a good job. Quadruple bypass surgery, you can have that person do that for you. The person's zeal has nothing to do with how effective that person uh, can perform his or her abilities. And spiritually speaking, it's, it's similar. For some reason, when we get to spiritual issues, we kind of act like this is its own little category where we can just make things up and God can just simply become the way we want Him to be, but not according to Paul. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Well, what does knowledge reveal? So let's just think of... Uh, Christianity and, and Islam, because that's just kind of you know, on people's minds and uh, an issue in our culture. Uh, what does knowledge reveal to us? Well, if you do just a very uh, cursory examination of the religions that you'll find that Islam believes that God is one, so they're a monotheistic religion like we are and like Judaism is. But Islam believes that God is only one, whereas Christians believe God is one who reveals himself in three distinct divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is just as divine as the Father, and the Holy Spirit is just as divine as Jesus and the Father, and that God exists in this kind of mysterious, Trinitarian way. That's what Christians believe. Muslims don't believe that. They reject that out of hand. That's offensive to them. The object of worship for a Muslim person is Allah. They worship Allah, that's what they call him, and Allah has distinct attributes and properties that are different than the God that Christians worship, and in particular for Christians, the one who is at the center of our worship is Jesus Christ, the God-man that God has come into this earth and taken upon himself human flesh and walked on this earth. We worship a man who is God, a God who became man. It's very different than Islam. Islam finds that offensive as well. A Muslim is not going to worship Jesus. And so there's a sense in which this pluralistic idea that all religions are equally legitimate is actually kind of offensive to the religions that it's seeking to esteem. I mean, can you imagine telling a Muslim, I just want you to know your religion is basically the same as what a Jew believes. Your religion, what you worship, is basically the same as what a Christian believes. There's really no difference. Uh, to, to any committed Muslim person, that's got to, to sound highly offensive. Plural. Here's a big problem with pluralism. It it doesn't honor the very real distinctives that exist in the different world religions. So, quite apart the question of whether Jesus is the only way or not, it just simply honors the differences of religions to deny pluralism. So, do we worship the same God? I think Paul would tell us absolutely not. We do not worship the same God as Muslims. And if you think about this logically, either, either we're both wrong, or one is wrong and one is right, but it can't be that we're both right. <laughs> That's just not logically possible. And in any case, our zeal or passion has nothing to do with it. So friends, I think we just have to be prepared to, to be strong on this and you know, to say you know, that there is a difference And we don't worship the same God. And I'm not sure where the Wheaton professor was coming from when she said that we do. She signed on to that doctrinal statement at Wheaton. So, you know, I'd be interested to hear her perspective. And I know there's a lot of different ways of looking at this. But I don't think as Christians being faithful to the Scriptures that we can hold the position that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. But let's consider a balance to that. There is a responsibility to pray for all people. That's the the second remark I want to make from this passage. Uh, A responsibility to pray, and even broader that, there's a responsibility the Christian has to to approach people who are different than us and believe differently than us with a heart of compassion and grace and mercy. So, look what happens here. Look at Paul's heart in verse 1, what he says here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is Paul speaking from the heart. This is something he feels deeply and passionately. And you might remember that at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul said something very similar, except he said it in a little more stronger terms, a little stronger terms. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That is, he's speaking about ethnic Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But what he's talking about is those who are clinging to Judaism and have rejected Jesus as Savior. And so Paul says, my heart is filled with sorrow over these people. I have, and there's anguish in my heart. It just troubles me so much that these people have rejected Jesus. Paul's response is one of, compassion. It's one of sincere, deep concern for those who believe differently than Him. Even so much that He says, I'd be willing to die myself. I'd be willing to to receive the wrath of God if I could see other people come to faith in Jesus. And you've got to think, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that He's thinking of His Savior. That's exactly what Jesus did, took the wrath of God to save others. So there's a balance here that we can strike, I think, that we can say on the one hand, no, all religions are not the same. No, not every religion is equally legitimate. We can say, yes, in accordance with the Scriptures, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He has said, no one comes to the Father but through me. We can say these things. We can hold these things. And at the same time, we can treat people who believe differently than us with respect, with love, with mercy. We can meet them with a heart of compassion. We don't have to perceive them as a threat. We don't have to take steps to have them removed from our schools or our neighborhoods. We don't have to try to keep them out of our country. We don't have to drive away people of other religions. We don't have to be afraid of them. Paul was not afraid. Paul's heart is filled with compassion. I wonder, how would you feel, friends, if a Muslim family moved in next door to you? How would you feel about that? And Some of you are probably thinking, that'd be fine. I'd I'd love that. Others of you are probably thinking, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What, What do you think Paul would say to you? Paul, this one whose heart is filled with unceasing anguish, Now I understand there is a difference between Muslims and Jews, but there is a tendency among Christians I think to be afraid of people who believe differently than we do. And I don't think Paul would condone that. In fact, what we can do is begin looking for things that we agree with in people even of different religions. And there are things we can do, and I think that's what Paul does here when he says in verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness, he says. Verse 2, I bear them witness. What he's saying is, I've seen it myself that these people are devoted to their God. I think Paul is giving them a compliment. I think he's saying that that's a good thing, that they're they're committed, they're devoted. Now, their devotion doesn't mean what they believe is true, because they have a zeal without knowledge, but nonetheless... They do have a commendable devotion to their God. And Paul did the same thing. Remember when he got to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he's looking around at all the altars and he says, I want to say, man, you, you're a very religious people. He he enters into it by giving them an affirmation, a compliment. And you know, we have there, there are a number of things that we have in common with Muslims. We 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 believe both believe in, a, you know, an eternal, supreme, divine being. Uh, we both believe that there is a non-negotiable moral code. We both believe that there's an afterlife, and there's a heaven, and there's a hell. We have more in common with Muslims than we do with atheistic, secularized society in which we live. That There's connections that we can make with our Muslim neighbors, and friends, and with members of a number of different religions. And that seems to be Paul's approach here. He's looking for points of agreement. But at the essence here what we have is a man, Paul, who has a heart filled with compassion for those who believe differently than he does, and he expresses that in prayer. My heart's desire and prayer it says in verse 1. So, Paul is devoting himself to praying for people who don't believe like him, but his prayer is that they would come to Jesus, that they would become Christians. That, that's what he wants. Now, it, let me just a slight tangent, if I could, here as we talk about prayer for just a moment. I want to step aside from the pluralism discussion. and. And go back, you know that we've been talking in Romans chapter 9 about the doctrine of election, and the reason I bring it up again is just because there's just a lot of questions about election, Um, election being this doctrine that God has predestined, chosen um, certain people to be saved, and has um, not chosen to choose everybody. God has overlooked some, He's passed over some and that this choice that God has made happened before the foundation of the world, okay? And a lot of people hear that, and the first question they ask, and it's a good question, but it's so commonly asked, and the question is this, then why pray? If God has chosen everybody and has worked out and planned out from before the foundation of the world who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, why should we pray for people to be saved? It's fixed. It's determined. There's no way to change it. I just want you to see, without going into this in too much detail, look at chapter 10, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer. Here's Paul, the same guy who wrote chapter 9, writing chapter 10. Paul hasn't forgotten in chapter 10 what he wrote in chapter 9. He hasn't forgotten the doctrine of election that he laid out for us there. In Paul's mind, there's no conflict Between the fact that God has chosen some and not others, and yet the responsibilities upon all Christians to pray for people to be saved. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. The Bible teaches them both. A guy named Douglas Kelly just laid this out really well. He's written a wonderful book on that topic, If God Knows Why Pray, I think it's called. I recommend it to you if this is a question that's been bothering you. But he says, we're given a mandate to become involved in His divine plan through human praying in some extraordinary way, the unchanging sovereign God with an eternally defined purpose for His creatures invites our input into the making of history. What a privilege it is to pray. So don't let God's sovereignty discourage you from praying. But here's what we see. God, Paul has this passion for prayer, and it comes from a heart of sincere concern for people who believe differently than he is. And and I think taking that kind of an attitude is a way forward in this whole kind of um, debate, this ongoing conversation about different religions. And I was just very impressed because I found an editorial written by the Chicago Tribune about the situation in Wheaton. And uh, Wheaton took a strong stand and said, we don't believe that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. You would maybe expect the Chicago Tribune would really hammer them for that. But I don't know all the details of how Wheaton handled it, but they must have handled it well because Chicago Tribune editorial board writes, Wheaton College wants to protect its expression of its beliefs. Unlike those who merely espouse a faith, Wheaton wants to live it. And they say that is a affirmation of that college. And then in the last paragraph, they write, students who have protested the school's action and those who support the school's action share an enduring bond. They are living out a life lesson in the frictions and redemptions of the jostling pluralism that is America. If every, if every disagreement in higher education had stakes this important, and voices this thoughtful, then every college diploma would be worth even more than it is. So they're saying if people would just handle their disagreements in the way that Wheaton did, we would be learning a lot and taking many steps forward. So I think that kind of an attitude springs from the attitude that we see here in the Apostle Paul. One last thing. Third thing, there is an opportunity that is only offered in the Christian gospel. Okay? It's possibility, responsibility, opportunity. Let's read verses, verse 3, chapter 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul's referring to the Jews and what he tells us here is that there are basically two options that are before every person in the world. You can either approach God seeking to establish your own righteousness as he says there in verse 3, through your morality, through your religious observances, through your zeal, your passion, That's one way. You can present to God all that you've done and establish a righteousness of your own, or you can submit to the righteousness of God. Those are the two options. And those are the two options that lay before you today. No matter what religion you profess, even if you're a professed Christian, are you going to meet God one day and say, here are all the righteous things I've done, God, now let me into heaven? Or are you going to submit to the righteousness of God? This is the opportunity that Christianity prov- provides, that no other religion provides. That there is a righteousness that comes from God to us. A righteousness that God gives to us. A righteousness that He offers to us. A righteousness that we don't have to labor to fulfill ourselves. Here is what sets Christianity apart. If you look at other religions, Judaism. Obey the Torah. Obey The rabbis, if you look at Islam, what is the main tenet of that religion? It's the five pillars, confession, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, pilgrimage. Do those things. Do them. Do them regularly. Do them the best you can. Devote yourself to them over and over again. Maybe God will save you if you do them enough. Buddhism has something called the Eightfold Path. Buddhism believes the primary objective is to relieve ourselves from suffering, and the way we relieve ourselves from suffering is through the eightfold path, which involves right beliefs, right thoughts, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation. Do all those things right. That's what God tells you. Prepare a righteousness of your own. Do the best you can and present it to God. Christianity is unique. Christianity gives an opportunity. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul is saying is that... The law as a means to salvation, the law as a means to obeying it so you can be saved, the whole system of following rules and regulations and religious observances as best as you can in order to get God to love you is over in Jesus Christ. Finished. Because He fulfilled the law for us. And in Jesus is the righteousness that you and I need. And God is offering Him to you. Today, And that same Jesus is offered to whomever will receive it, so that 2 Corinthians 5.21 would be true. For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we would become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. I'm not an expert on world religions. I don't know what every religion teaches, but I've certainly never seen any religion that offers anything like this the righteousness that you need provided in Jesus. There's a historian named Carlos Fuentes, a Mexican historian. He's written about uh, the Aztec Indians and the religion of the Aztec Indians. And he notes that what is central to their religion is offering sacrifices to gods, and in some cases, sacrificing people to the gods. And Carlos talks about what happened when Christian missionaries came to the Aztecs and began to preach the gospel to them. And he says that these Aztec Indians were just, they were absolutely bewildered by what they were hearing. And they said, because we have seen men sacrificed to the gods, but we have never seen a god who would sacrifice himself for men. We've never seen that. That's the gospel, and that's what sets the gospel apart. Christianity is not the same as other religions. It is better. I didn't say that Christians are better people. I said Christianity is better because we have a better Savior and one who, having fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, can say, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have done for us what we can't do for ourselves, as we have been singing this morning. And Father, I pray, fill our hearts, God, with sensitivity, compassion, grace, love for those who don't think like we do, to those who worship differently than we do. But Father, thank you that in Jesus there is something offered nowhere else. God, help us to cherish what you've done for us in your Son and to be bold in proclaiming it to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.